0: Cosmos Science, news, magazine, podcasts, video and features. Welcome to Cosmos Country, where our reporters talk about dealing with climate change in rural and regional Australia.
1: Preventing the heartache, cost and chaos of Australia's recent floods from happening again.
2: She said this isn't just a flood. This is this is landscape
0: collapse.
3: A lot, large areas are now being declared uninsurable.
0: This week, Glenn Morrison and Jamie Seidel chat to Roslyn Prinsley about disaster solutions for flooded communities. They discuss the work being done by researchers, governments and community groups to learn from past events and better prepare for the future. Can our river systems become resilient? And what can be done to try and lower insurance premiums in flood-prone areas?
1: Hello, everyone. This is Glenn Morrison for Cosmos Country. Given the unbelievable heat embracing the Northern Hemisphere, it may seem odd to be talking today about what regional communities can do about floods. But with me today to do exactly that is my Cosmos Country colleague, Jamie Seidel. Today, we're looking at preventing the heartache, cost and chaos of Australia's recent floods from happening again. I was looking at a few quick figures a minute ago from 2022, which tell a pretty harrowing tale. A thousand people died from flooding in Pakistan. Uh, the damage bill from Hurricane Ian in the United States was more than a hundred billion US last year. And in here in Australia, 38 people died in floods and the damage bill just for the northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland was more than five billion, the most expensive disaster in Australian history. Here with Jamie and I to talk about reducing the impact of such floods on Australia's rural and regional areas is Associate Professor Roslyn Prinsley. I hope I said that right, Roslyn, head of the Disaster Solutions Team at the Australian National University. She and her team have been working with flooded communities trying to understand what happened and what we can do to reduce the odds of it happening again. Hello, Dr. Prinsley.
2: Hi, lovely to be here today.
1: Can you first up tell us a bit about your team? That sounds very interesting.
2: I have two teams that are working on flooding. One of them is looking at nature-based solutions to flooding and the extent to which we can use nature to mitigate the impacts of flooding. And we're partnering with regional communities, um, largely with councils and communities to do that work. The other um, team is looking at How we can build community flood intelligence networks in order to be able to much better predict flooding and have much better warnings um, so that people can get out of the way quicker and, and make sure that they're safe and their property is safe.
1: What sort of problems are they experiencing that you think you might be able to help them with?
2: So um, we were approached by a community leader north of Lismore in the Channons at the end of the first set of um, really tragic floods that they had there. And I walked away from that discussion promising that we'd try and do something to help them because she said, this isn't just a flood. This This is landscape collapse. Um, we really need to do something about this. And they'd been very disappointed because they'd had very little warning um, and the normal sort of official systems just weren't working for them. She gave me stories about, you know, some people sitting in the worst rainfall they'd ever seen, the heaviest rainfall they'd ever seen with just water rising in front of their very eyes. And when they looked on the bomb website, it said it wasn't raining there. When they realised the sort of situation they were in, they tried to contact others, but the power was down so they couldn't contact anybody. So the communication systems weren't working.
3: Part of the situation you described there is uh, that our infrastructure, our systems are set up to cope with what we've previously considered to be once in 10, once in 20 year events. And we've always sort of accepted that the once in 50 year event is gonna be somebody else's problem and not ours. But those once in 50 year events are now becoming the once in 10 year events, once in 20 year events, and uh, our systems are simply not able to, to cope. Is this something that we can raise the bar on when it comes to being able to predict the impact of a flood event
2: the flood in Lismore has been estimated to potentially have been a one in 2000 year event. And we are expecting that we'll have a lot more of those. And as you say, you only need to look around the world at the moment. Um, it's not just happening in Australia, it's happening all over the world. Climate change is here and these intense, large floods are here. There is an issue with predicting the extent to which they will you know, be in what places and where we'll have which ones worst, you know, it's impossible to have a crystal ball. But we're fortunate in the Institute of Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, we have quite a few experts on climate change that are helping us look at the potential scenarios that we would be expecting given climate change and the extent of flood inundation in some of the areas we're working in.
3: We know that flooding, whether it's just um, overflowing your gutters or the 2000 year event, are more likely because of the way that hot air holds more moisture. So it's inevitable it's going to be happening, whether we want it to or not?
2: Yes, that's right. And um, the current data shows and modelling shows us that we're, we'll be expecting more very large, intense floods and less smaller amounts of rainfall. You know, the sort of rainfall that generally fills our dams over time, that's the sort of rainfall we'll get less of. We'll be getting more of these very intense rainfall events, which cause flooding. And so that's of some concern into the future. Um, I guess that has
3: implications for everything from livestock dams, Through to community causeways, going through the centre of a uh, of a town, all of those things will now be requiring uh, more attention, more investment, more more expenditure, so that they don't collapse with the, the next next rain.
1: Roslyn, I was I was recently having a very similar conversation with the Richmond River Landcare Group. Oh yeah. What sparked my interest is that yes, flood modelling is is horrendously mathematical and and takes quite a long time. But how does that sort of mesh with what community groups are wanting to do. And, and this Richmond River group is saying we want to identify strategic locations upstream of Lismore where we can reforest and slow down the flood wave and the flood peak and therefore diminish the level the flood levels at the peak in the town. And it and it kind of goes some way to changing the way we're addressing disasters in Australia, and I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this in that previously we've kind of gone, oh, my God, there's a disaster, let's repair everything and fix it and get stuck, get going again, but we need to shift to predicting what these things might look like when, if and certainly when they happen and what we can do about that now.
2: What, what we're trying really hard to do is find out from the community, and, and they're very um, advanced in their thinking in that particular catchment, they have the river care group and the land care groups. They have a lot of um, groups that have, re- and even private individuals that really understand the landscape and have lots of ideas about where nature based solutions might either um, detain or slow the flood. And so we um, are hoping, and with other groups, to take on board the information from those land care groups and other knowledgeable members of the community and see to the extent to which we can model those in our system um, to look at the impact that they would have on the flood.
1: I'm also thinking at a a kind of a broader level in that half of that funding for the Richmond project came from a thing called the Disaster Ready Fund. I think they divvied up about $70 million in New South Wales alone for those sort of projects, some of which were nature-based. And I wondered if I wondered how that partnership's going to work between universities, uh, clean community groups. Where do governments come into that to, to support it?
2: I think the government has a huge role. There are a couple of um, Disaster Ready Fund projects where the is being funded to look at nature-based solutions. And then there's our national project. So we're working with... Um, 11 different communities from Cairns down to the Goulburn Broken, so on the eastern coast of Australia. If a community can get this kind of level of funding that the Richmond Catchman has got, um, what would be great is to coordinate across all the communities that have that sort of funding they're essentially doing research. So they think things will work. They don't know. Um, Universities have got the modelers that can actually model the impact before they plant the trees to see which are the best options. So we also need to look at um, the economics of those and the other ecological impacts that those would have. So for instance, um, if you put trees in, in one place, are they the right species of trees? What impact will they have on the local endangered species? Will those trees last over time if the climate changes or should we be putting in different species? There's so many questions to answer and it's very complex and I think it's really important that we have some kind of overarching framework that each community can use so that we can learn from those communities.
1: They will work alongside the researchers and it'll be kind of suck it and see. We'll plant trees here and be trained in taking measurements in certain ways of environmental parameters and feed that back to the researchers so that they can see what effect things are having before the next big one and 2,000 year flood. Is that something that your, your team is involved in?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we aren't doing the implementing. It's actually a challenging situation to decide which is the best bet. I think it's worth putting that extra couple of maybe few months in thinking and modelling and designing before planting or before building a wetland, because you really want to make sure that you're going to have the best impact possible. So that's where we see ourselves playing a role as well. What we really need is data. And, you know, the best data is the data that's in your own country. It's, it's all very well to look at what someone did in the Netherlands or in Belgium, but that gives you some clues as to which way to go. But if you could actually do it in your own country and do it in a really coordinated way, that would that's what we really need. We don't have much time. These floods are going to get worse. We really need to be prepared for them.
3: I guess, you know, that's part of the whole, the big picture. Once again, there's no single silver bullet. We're seeing already from the uh, flood recovery programs that uh, there's plenty of uh, controversy. And obviously one of the big um, problems coming out of it is large areas are now being declared uninsurable. Um, And it's not just a problem relating to Australia's flood zones. I was reading a story also just the other day about how much of California is on the brink of becoming uninsurable in terms of fire. So what role do insurance companies have to play when it comes to reducing the risk of an inevitable event from causing financial, emotional loss.
2: We have actually had quite a few conversations with insurance companies about this. And I have to say, to begin with, there was quite a lot of enthusiasm, but they've also been doing their research and realised there's not very much um, data out there on the impact of nature-based solutions. And until, for instance, if you put an, an alarm in your house... Um, then you get a reduction in your premium because you know it's less likely that you would be burgled. There's data on that. They know that. They don't know if you plant up your catchment to trees, the extent to which that will reduce flooding under different flooding scenarios. And that's why this another reason why. This sort of research is so important to get right now so that we can give the insurance companies that confidence that these places, which perhaps were very, very vulnerable under one scenario, might be less vulnerable under a nature-based solutions scenario. But we don't have that confidence at the moment. So there's a lot of work to do to get to the situation where the insurance companies can be more confident.
3: It can't just be uh, a matter for governments. It can't just be a matter for local councils and it can't just be a matter for individuals, surely.
2: I mean, just yesterday I had a community leader call me about insurance. Um, We're proposing to hold a summit or a forum on insurance and financing because there's a big gap and a big a lot of issues that need to be addressed.
3: Okay, so it's difficult enough to do the modeling. Mm. It's difficult enough to get the data on what impact what changes have. What about the difficulties of implementing those changes?
2: part of it is um, convincing the people that own the land that this is a good thing for them and a good thing for everyone else. But the other part of it is the numbers of policies and regulations that impact on a simple thing like planting a tree. If we really want to make our catchments more resilient, then there should be a way to make it much more straightforward for groups of landholders to implement these kinds of approaches.
3: I imagine that there's a lot of communities out there and farmers out there who just feel like they can't make any progress. There's no progress being made in the halls of power. There's no progress being made with insurance. What sort of start can these on-the-ground communities and people use as a stepping stone, say, towards a more resilient future, towards flood mitigation?
2: Yeah, so it's it's really just approaching maybe maybe starting with your local council or your local land care group, local river care group, and going from there to see what you can do.
3: Ste- stepping out on the streets and ringing that cowbell and getting people to pay attention. Well, thank you very, very much for that. This a fascinating subject, pressing subjects in many ways, but at least um, we know that uh, efforts are being made to understand how things work and what we need to to address them. Okay, thanks very
1: much. That's about all we have time for today. You've been listening to Dr. Rosalind Princely of ANU, also Jamie Seidel from Cosmos on the podcast that goes Beyond the City Limits to ask how Australians' regions are going with climate change. My name is Glenn Morrison. I look forward to joining you next time on
0: Cosmos Country. You've been listening to Cosmos Country, a look at how regional Australia is preparing for and adapting to climate change. Cosmos Country is supported by the Walkley Foundation and META. For more information and to listen to the whole series of Cosmos Country podcasts, visit the website, cosmosmagazine.com.